Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the ACES cast. My name is Kulnasib Gatulina and in this podcast I talk to researchers affiliated with the Amsterdam Center for European Studies about their ongoing projects, academic journey and favorite books. My guest today is Anna van Duin. Hello Anna. Hello Gunas. Anna van Duin is assistant professor of private law at the University of Amsterdam and deputy director of the Amsterdam Center for Transformative Private Law. Her research focuses on issues related to access to justice, dispute resolution, and digital transformation of the civil justice system. Anna, last year in October 2020, you obtained a PhD degree in law with distinction, and my sincere congratulations on this outstanding achievement. Before we discuss in more detail the topic of your doctoral thesis, let's take a quick look backwards. After finishing your master's degrees in Oxford and before joining the University of Amsterdam as a PhD fellow, you worked for six and a half years as a civil attorney. What did this practical work experience teach you and what made you return to academia? Thank you, Gulnas, also for having me here today. Yeah, it was really surreal to finish my thesis during a global pandemic. I spent almost all my time between the same four walls of my living room writing and teaching via Zoom, as we are talking now today. Um, and yeah, universities and other public buildings like courthouses closed, making access to education and access to courts, which is the topic of my research, physically impossible for people and for students. And I really think an online classroom or an online courtroom is not quite the same as seeing people face to face or talking to a judge face to face. And being in a courtroom was actually one of my favorite parts of being an attorney, presenting your case to the courts, reacting to the other party's arguments, uh, the court's questions. It requires you to prepare intensely, think of all possible perspectives. You have to be clear, you have to be very convincing. Uh, and those skills also help me as a teacher and as a researcher. That said, I think law is an academic discipline with a strong social and practical dimension. So many of the cases I did, for example, concerned state liability, where people claim their fundamental rights have been violated. And there you see that access to court is particularly important in this respect, as well as a fair hearing, that you can get a court to actually listen to your claim about your fundamental rights violation. And I still remember a case where the other party showed up uh, without a lawyer, which clearly put her at a disadvantage, as opposed to me representing my client. She did not know how to translate her position into legal arguments. Um, and in a way, it was an inequality of arms. I've always been interested in access to justice, how people can effectuate their claims, how they can obtain a remedy for a violation of their rights. But as an attorney, you are part of the system. Like in this example of the courtroom, I could not help this person without a lawyer. So I want to take a step back and really look at these systemic issues from a bird's eye view. And embarking on a PhD has enabled me to do uh, just that. I had the wonderful opportunity to join the Judges in Utopia project of Professor Chantal Mack on the role of civil courts in the European Union today in protecting fundamental rights and upholding public values. But I must be honest with you, um, I did give it a thought to combine it with practice because I really enjoyed it. But I really did not see how because it's such a dynamic but also busy job that requires you to work a lot of hours. And again, being part of the system also makes it difficult to take that step back. Um, you really need time and headspace to do research. On the other hand, I do not think I could have done this project on access to justice and how it works in practice 
if I would not have had that practical experience and see the law operate in the real world. You're already talking from these both sides, like practice-oriented and more um, research-oriented ones. And, and here, I'm just interesting in a question. Okay, there is a tired argument among the critics of academia who tend to portray the scholars' community as an ivory tower and idyllic place untarnished by the inequalities of the outside world. And as someone who has seen both sides, do you still agree with this image of academia? And does a scholar have a responsibility at all in taking action against social injustice? What do you think about it? Those are two very good questions that we always end up in arguments uh, with my colleagues about uh, because it also touches on teaching and what is important for the students. I think you can definitely be a good and socially engaged uh, scholar without having worked in practice yourself. Um, and especially in law and also my colleagues, we are all in touch with judges, legal practitioners, interest groups, uh, policymakers, and that really helps us to see the bigger picture and also raise the relevant questions, like what we should actually do research about. But I do believe you need to have an understanding of what the law is in a descriptive way before exploring what it should be in a more normative way. Um, take the example of equality of arms that I already mentioned. It is meant to ensure equality between the parties involved in litigation, but my research shows that in cases between consumers and professional parties, it is actually often invoked by the professional party when they don't like that the judge is actively helping the consumer who is sometimes doesn't even have a lawyer. And I'm talking here about people being sued at, and at risk of losing their home. Um, so it's not just small claims or small amounts of money, but really um, cases involving mortgage contracts where people cannot pay their mortgage. And who is the weaker party here? So who needs equality of arms? Should the judge not be allowed or maybe even be obliged to intervene in order to restore equality? And especially if we want to achieve social justice, as you've already mentioned. And I think those are very important questions. We really need the descriptive and empirical research to inform more normative questions. And I myself am not interested in the theory as such. I want to connect it to what is actually happening. We need to prepare our students for the real world, also because most of them will move on to become lawyers. On the other hand, I think, especially because they will become lawyers, we should also teach them to look beyond the law as just an instrument to solve practical problems, because it's also an academic discipline. They also must be able to explore the interest considerations behind the law between the legal norms. Uh, for example, why is social justice an objective and how is it reflected in the creation and interpretation of the legal norms? So how do we see it coming back in practice? And as scholars, I think it is our job to expose gaps and tensions in the system and challenges and opportunities that we see. And if that is what you mean by uh, taking action, um, then yes, I think that is our responsibility. Law is constantly changing. We have to map those transformations and we have to point out their effects. It may be harder to see those effects when you are in the system. So perhaps it's good that we are outsiders. I already mentioned that as being an important driver for me to go back to academia. And that said, I am an observer rather than an activist. Um, I prefer to reflect rather than to impose my opinion. So I hope that makes me both a good academic and a good teacher to, to try to see both uh, sides, as you mentioned. But it does not put me in an ivory tower. Um, I can be very passionate about the challenges of our time, in particular social justice or climate change. And I think we must always ask ourselves what the role of law is and what lawyers can contribute here. So let's indeed talk a little bit more about these intricacies of access to justice that you already introduced uh, in this uh, in our conversation. And yeah, 
focus on your PhD thesis, as it is. Its description says that your study investigates the functions of Article 47 of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights in European private law. Since not many of our listeners may be familiar with the the EU Charter, could you please briefly explain what it is and why Article 47 deserve a separate attention? Article 47, yeah, you can call it just a random number, number, but it's actually a very important provision in the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. Other than, well, the other more substantive fundamental rights, it safeguards the right of access to courts and an effective remedy and a fair hearing in the context of EU law. So in case your EU rights and your other fundamental rights are violated. Um, so you must have access to an effective remedy when your rights have been infringed, otherwise you just have those rights on paper and you cannot effectuate them in practice. And if people are denied a proper chance to go to court, if they do not have any opportunity or any real opportunity to to bring a claim, then Article 47 comes into play. Unfortunately, there are still many situations where this is the case. So all member states have committed to the charter and to Article 47, but it's still the most evoked article before the Court of Justice. So you see that uh, there are a lot of situations where it may may arise. And I have specifically investigated how this may happen in Spain and the Netherlands and how civil courts, as well as the Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice, deal with this. And then in the context of consumer cases um, about unfair standard terms and conditions, uh, because we're all confronted with those contracts. And there are so many cases about this that actually expose the gaps there. And you can think about disproportionately high interest rates, for example, in the mortgage contracts that I mentioned, um, short time limits that make it impossible to actually, well, think about the, the defense you want to raise or hire a lawyer or arbitration clauses that have been very controversial because they exclude people's rights to go to courts, a public court, a public place. And consumer law is actually very important because we act in our capacity as consumers on a day-to-day basis. We are all consumers every day. And EU law grants us rights vis-a-vis the traders that we enter into contracts with. Um, But what happens if if the trader does not respect our rights? And my research shows that it cannot be taken for granted that if that happens, effective judicial protection is always available and accessible. So, for instance, in Spain, uh, many people were unjustly evicted from their homes in the wake of the financial crisis. And at first, courts could do nothing to stop this. There was simply no procedural tool available for them to intervene. And then the Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, held that they should at least be able to check whether there were any unfair terms and conditions in the mortgage contract that were the basis of those claims, the basis for that eviction. So there you see it's very important that there should be court intervention. Costs are another issue. So if hiring a lawyer is mandatory, for example, and people run the risk of having to pay also not only their own lawyer, but also the other party's lawyer's fees when they lose, they may be deterred from going to court entirely and defending their rights. So they may actually yeah, not, not bring up a defense, which is very problematic if they otherwise would have done so. Talking about an ivory tower, what my research does reveal is that in my view, at least European courts can sometimes be accused of sitting in one because they do not really provide sufficient guidance to national courts on how to apply Article 47 in these cases. So the cases about real people with real life problems. Um, So it all tends to be a little bit too general for national courts to apply this in practice. That's why I did look at the national courts and it was really interesting to see the differences between Spain and the Netherlands in that respect and how they approach fundamental rights. So in Spain, constitutional language is much more ingrained in judicial reasoning. 
but on the other hand, some courts do actually use it to justify rigid principles rather than go for the way that would enhance consumer protection without actually considering how it affects consumer protection. In the Netherlands, that seems to go well better. The rules appear to be less restrictive. Courts find ways to achieve uh, those objectives of consumer protection of at least the EU rights. But on the other hand, the systemic issues like costs, the one that I mentioned as an example, may remain hidden because there is no reference to Article 47. And if that reference would be there, that's what I argue at least, it could contribute to the visibility of fundamental rights issues and it may function as a signal in that respect. So I really make a call for courts to, also national courts, to, to be more explicit about how they protect these fundamental rights. I know that you continue doing research and recently a thematic research grant was awarded to you for a project on Europe's role in the removal and regulation of harmful content. How does this project relate to your research on access to justice and fundamental rights? Yes, it is indeed a project about uh, harmful online content, which unfortunately many people are confronted with uh, today. And it is an interdisciplinary project that I work together with colleagues at the Institute for Information Law. Uh, Naomi Appelman and uh, the Amsterdam School of Communication Research, uh, Brahim Zarwali, who is an uh, assistant professor there. And we focus on the experiences of internet users who have been well, confronted with harmful content, such as uh, cyberbullying, the publication of credit card details, other sensitive personal information, or the dissemination of sexual images without consent. And those are just a few examples of how online content can affect people's private lives and may have a deep impact on them. It proves to be very difficult to have such content removed quickly, and we want to find out why. Um, a previous study we did for the Dutch government suggests that unlike the government was hoping or expecting, um, there is not a single remedy that would solve all issues, not a single procedure, because there's always a trade-off between the need for speed on the one hand and the need for safeguards on the other. So um, what we would like to do with the funding is conduct a survey on people's perceptions of problems and obstacles um, in taking down harmful content, which is closely related to access to justice on the one hand, as well as content moderation and the freedom of expression online on the other. And in other words, it's really about the operationalization of fundamental rights in practice. We explicitly look at access to justice in a broad sense, so not only access to courts, but also the availability of information, out-of-court procedures, and an example of such an out-of-court procedure is Facebook's tool to report inappropriate abusive content. And then the question that arises, or one of the questions that arises is, what if Facebook decides, for example, not to remove the content, or vice versa, what if it removes the content all too easily, then the freedom of speech becomes at peril. And it's also a very topical issue because platform regulation is at the center of the European debate right now um, on the so-called Digital Services Act, the DSA. We need platforms to play a role, if only because of the vast quantity of content shared online. But that also means we give them power over online speech. And that's why it's particularly important we come up with a digital due process, so to speak, for all parties involved to make sure they are heard. 
So how are you dealing with this controversial issue of indeed on the one hand defending the rights of the weak and here I'm thinking of you know platforms like Stop Online Shaming SOS in the Netherlands that indeed stands up for for example the the victims of online harassment of online bullying and on the one hand they do have cases that focus on revenge porn that is indeed very obvious and easy to say that indeed you have to defend the weak but at the same time they have a cases for example on doctors who were added into the blacklist there it becomes a bit more tricky. So where do you draw this line of protecting the rights and curbing the freedom of speech? There is really no general answer to that because it's a very difficult balance between on the one hand respecting respecting the freedom of expression and also the freedom of information. For example, the, the doctor's case that you mentioned and on the other hand the right to private lo- uh, life. Um, and my angle would be that at least there should always be an entity, preferably a court, but uh, because of all the obstacles for access to courts, at least an entity that is able to decide quickly and thoroughly, there you already see attention, but to establish the unlawfulness, to strike that balance, actually. And I do not think it's a good idea to leave that entirely up to platforms, at least not without any form of uh, external control. Um, I'm also skeptical about, for example, online dispute resolution systems replacing courts entirely. But barriers to access to justice are a real issue. And you mentioned the Stop Online Shaming Foundation in the Netherlands that represents victims in a specific collective action, victims of the sharing of naked pictures without their consent on a website called vagina.nl, where girls are secretly filmed in the changing rooms of H&M, for example, on the beach or in the shower by their ex, where it's really easy to say, yes, this is unlawful, um, but they still need, they they still do not manage to to achieve takedown and stay down. So a civil society organization needs to act on their behalf and bring those collective proceedings to combat practices like these. So I think this is a very important example of how we need mechanisms to defend and represent victims, step one. And step two, an independent entity that can actually provide a due process to all the parties involved and strike this balance between the different and conflicting fundamental rights um, at stake. Recently, also, I know you joined the Digital Legal Lab, an inter-university research center on law and digital technologies. So does this lab also focus on somehow solving these kind of problems? And what's your role in this initiative? Yes, definitely. So I'm part of the research initiative, uh, Digital Transformation of Decision Making, which focuses on the shift from human to automated decision making and, and the way it affects society, democratic processes and the rule of law. And my colleagues from the Institute for Information Law are the ones who substantively look at the freedom of expression and the freedom of information And I provide the access to justice perspective, so the the procedural perspective, so to speak. And those are all fundamental rights at play that we try to accommodate in our study. The online environment mirrors the real world to a large extent, but it also brings about new challenges and new opportunities. And uh, this will have a profound impact on the way law, but also civil justice is delivered in the future, or it's already taking place now, actually. And I will give two examples. So first, in line with our project on harmful online content, people are confronted with a wide variety of internet services that are all regulated differently with a wide variety of types of content, which makes the legal landscape particularly difficult to navigate. So we need to map all these different categories and see how people can navigate them. And moreover, the open and decentralized structure of the internet and online communication in general makes it possible to hide behind anonymity or across borders in another jurisdiction. So how then as a victim are you supposed to identify the party to address in the first place? 
what is the role of platforms and hosting providers as intermediaries, which is a very broad question, but we really look at it in the context of content moderation and then even more specifically notice and takedown procedures as they called. So the procedures they have to have in place for people to actually have an opportunity to have the content removed. So that's the first example where you see all these questions coming up um, in relation to digitization actually of civil justice. And a second example is the emergence of, I already mentioned it, but online dispute resolution systems in the light of the growth of e-commerce. So for example, online marketplaces like Amazon and eBay, and especially in times of COVID with not only public buildings being closed, but also shops, there was an extreme rise in in e-commerce and packages being delivered uh, to people's houses. What if something goes wrong, then ODR, online dispute resolution, can provide a fast and cheap solution, especially in cross-border cases if you order something from abroad. But the question here again is how digital due process can be ensured in a transparent manner. Do we actually know what's going on? Who is taking the decisions there? On what basis the decisions are being taken? How the procedure goes? And you may say it's not important to to people, like as long as I get my money back. But um, if you take a step back, then it is actually very important that there are control mechanisms and safeguards in place. Because access to justice does not only entail access, it also entails justice with due regard to the position of the parties involved and all other interests at stake. For example, consumer protection. Uh, We've already talked about it today, but uh, yeah, that really takes us back to my PhD thesis, which will be published this year by Intersentia. Um, but where I examine the role of courts in all this and how we can protect those public values. Anna, thank you so much for this insight. And I just wanted to indeed go to our final question related to books. What was the last book you read that left a powerful impact on you? Yeah, that's that's a difficult question. I found it hard to pick one, but in the end, I settled on Hold Up the Sky by Sixing Lu, a Chinese sci-fi writer. That was recommended by someone from the Humane AI Reading Club. And Humane AI is a research priority area at the UFA that I'm a member of. And it is a collection of short stories about our relationship with technology and our place in the universe at large, intertwined with Chinese culture. And that's a really interesting mix. Teaching us questions like, what if we would travel 10,000 years in the, uh, in the future and found out that in the future, humankind has all but disappeared after uploading its collective consciousness into the cloud. So there are no physical humans anymore. Or what if a supercomputer could generate all poems that have and could ever be written? How would we find the ultimate works of poetry and who would judge and appreciate them? So many of the stories are actually about arts and what it means to us. And I really love the writer's imagination. So in, in one story, a gigantic ice sculpture is built from our oceans that are completely drained by an alien artist just to create a ring of ice around our planet. So she destroys, the artist destroys our ecosystem just because she can and because she thinks it's beautiful. And she doesn't really care about restoring the ocean back to its original state. And humankind has to put all their efforts into taking the blocks down, the blocks of ocean down and bring them back to our planet. And I volunteered for the Ocean Cleanup, uh, a nonprofit organization a couple of years ago. And it's a project that started in 2012 to do something about the plastic soup. And I really see parallels here with the story of uh, Xiqing Lu, because back then no one really cared, but there is a growing awareness that we're all in this together. And I really hope we will become more conscious about our surroundings, because no matter how much I love dystopian novels, I do not want to end up living in one. 
so this is this is one of my favorite stories from the book and another one that shows on the one hand how insignificant we are in the wider universe but also how important and what we can do if we work together as a species there's a story called the village teacher which of course i also like because i'm a teacher myself but they're an intergalactic war which sounds a bit random but it makes perfect sense in the context of the story an alien spaceship comes to destroy our planet uh, but before doing so they actually want to carry out a civilization test to establish whether there is intelligent life and if there is they will not destroy earth because it's unethical and they make a four-dimensional scan of earth and pick some random inhabitants to question them and those random inhabitants turn out to be chinese school children who thanks to their dedicated teacher and also lucky for all of us are able to answer the questions in the end And to me, this shows not only the importance of education, but also how ridiculous it is to focus on the differences between people rather than on sharing insights. In a way, you could even see this, I think, as a plea for open access, where everyone has access to all knowledge or at least the opportunity to, to, to get access to that knowledge. Sounds like an amazing book. Thank you very much, Anna, for being with us today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Join us for the next episode as I talk to Natalie Welfans about her PhD thesis, integration programs, and gender bias. Stay tuned.